Thus says the Lord, Curse is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Dear congregation of the Lord, these are very strong warnings the Lord gave to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Why such strong warnings? Because the snakes, the snake, please, there is only one main snake, and his allies have been ceaselessly trying to woo God's people into rebellion since the Garden of Eden. God says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The devil says, rebellion to the Lord is the way to wisdom. So, the eternal, not eternal, the perennial question has been how to live a blessed life. Do we live in rebellion to God's principle, accepting postmodern sexual perversions, subjectivity, and idolatry, or do we submit to God's principles and accept Him as our Creator, our Heavenly Father, and the fountain of all wisdom? Do we follow the God of this earth, of this century, or do we follow the God of the covenant? Do we follow death, or do we follow life? To incline our hearts toward the truth, to exalt us to choose life, the Holy Spirit shows us how God blesses the man who delights in his word. Therefore, it is my privilege this morning to deliver to you God's exhortation under the following theme. God blesses the man who delights in his word. God blesses the man who delights in his word. Under this theme, we will see three points. His delight, his fruitfulness, his future reward. His delight, his fruitfulness, and his future reward. His is for the righteous, the godly man. So our first point is delight. Our text starts with the expression, blessed is the man. Here the Holy Spirit joyfully acclaims the many blessings of the godly man. We could also render it, oh, the many blessings of the man. And as we shall see, the blessings are not primarily a set of emotions, but the state of being in step with God, of knowing God as our creator, of rightly knowing him and heartily loving him, as our catechism confesses with scriptures. In brief, the state of living as he has created us to live. 
The Holy Spirit does not stop at the joyful exclamation. He characterizes the godly by telling us what the godly man is not. First, the godly man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does this mean? It means that the godly man does not listen to the advice of the enemies of God. He does not go to them to understand life. For example, he does not listen to worldly psychology telling him how to raise his children. He knows that the Bible says in Proverbs 13 verse 24, whoever spares the road, the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent in disciplining him. So the godly man does not listen when the world tells him, make your child the god of your home to show that you love him, or cut off his healthy part to show your love. But let us proceed. We read that the godly man does not stand in the way of sinners. What does this mean? The sentence is not about standing on the sidewalk on which the ungodly are walking and trying to hinder them. No. It means that the godly man does not cast his lot with the way of life of sinners. It means that you will not find the godly man on the broad way that leads to perdition. Whenever the godly man reflects on life's questions, he refuses to imitate the lifestyle of those who habitually transgress God's commandments. For example, when he thinks about marriage, he will not follow the, law, the, the world in living in fornication with his partner to try to see if the partner is the right one. Finally, the godly man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This statement means that the godly man does not associate or fellowship with those who arrogantly reject God's word and openly attack his honor. The godly will not have God mockers as friends. For example, you will not see the godly man on social media giving thumbs up to people who mock God. You will not see him increasing their following by clicking on their videos. In brief, in all of life, the godly man shuns those who willfully rebel against the Lord. The godly man does so by refusing to follow their advice, by rejecting their way of life, and by shunning association with them. But why does the godly reject the life of rebellion? Why? He can reject a worldly life because he has another love that is opposed, that is opposed to the love of the world. His heart overflows with love for God's instructions. And because he loves God's instructions, his mind always dwells on them. He says with the Psalm 
119, O Lord, how I love your law. All the day long, I am studying it, meaning I am pondering it, I am ruminating it, I am meditating over it. But wait a moment. How does the godly man find time to meditate on God's instructions continually? Doesn't he have work to do? The godly man can continuously ponder, think, and speak God's instruction to himself because he has memorized them. The godly man has hidden God's instruction in his heart that he might not sin. And because he has memorized the word of God, he can think about it while walking, sitting, or even lying down. He tries to assess all his activities by considering God's word. In this way, the Holy Spirit continuously renews his mind in the knowledge of God and enables him to refuse conformity to this world. Brothers and sisters, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the Psalms on his lip while dying on the cross. How could we remember the Psalms while suffocating on the cross? It is partly because his life was a life of memorization of God's word. The book of Luke says that he was growing in wisdom and stature before God and men. So the Lord Jesus himself had to learn. So if Jesus, the word incarnate, the God-man, spent time memorizing God's instruction, how much more should we be spending time memorizing God's word if we want to imitate him? You might say to yourself, how can I memorize? I don't have time. But brother or sister, there are so many ways. You can listen to the Bible, for example, while commuting, while doing your houseworks, or while exercising. You can entertain yourself with sermons and read good theologians like Calvin, Bavink. You can study the Bible with your friends. I know, for example, some women in this congregation, truly I know them, they study the Bible together almost every day. So it is something that you can do. There are many ways of memorizing the word. But there is another way, one of the easiest ways. Can you guess what it is? It is psalm singing. Yes, psalm singing. Sing the psalms. Use them regularly. And after a while, you will see that you will start repeating them to yourself almost automatically. And it becomes easier and easier for you to think about them. And the Holy Spirit will use the word, the psalms that you have in your mind 
to make you more and more heavenly minded. There is much more to say about the necessity of memorizing God's words like Jesus. But for now, let us retain that the godly man takes pleasure in thinking and speaking the word of God to himself. He can do so constantly because he has memorized it. We have many means to, of imitating him. And one of the easy ways to start is to sing the Psalms regularly. Now, let us see what God says about his fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of the godly man. His fruitfulness. We read, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water. What does the imagery of a tree communicate? It communicates stability and life. But this tree is not a wild tree that grew up on its own. Someone planted it. And who is that person who planted the tree? God. God is the planter. He planted the tree near an abundant water course. And what then does the water course represent? It represents the word. What then can we draw from this picture? We learn that God is the one who grants godliness and spiritual stability. We also learn that just like a tree needs water to grow, the godly man receives his spiritual growth, stability, and resourcefulness from the word. When we then link this imagery to our previous point, what do we realize? We realize that the godly man has understood by God's grace that his help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He does not just confess it, but he believes it. That's why he always delights in God's word and ruminates over it. Do you want then to assess how much you want or you expect God's blessings? How much you believe that he is truly your help? Check your delight in the word. Do you want to be alive spiritually? Be in the word. Otherwise, what will happen? The desert of worldliness will engulf you and you will wither like the tree, like the wicked man that we heard of in Jeremiah 17. The next line that we read is this that yields its fruit, that meaning the tree, its fruit in its season. What is that fruit that the tree produces? That fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It has nine facets. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since the godly man is in step with heaven, 
He produces his fruit when the season comes. Now, when is the season to produce the fruit of the Spirit? The answer is always. Always. Is it something that we can do on our own? No, it is impossible. Is that something natural? No, it is supernatural. Why is it supernatural? Because spiritual growth is at the, hand, at the end in the hands of God. God's word is not an end in itself. It is a means of grace, a channel that the Holy Spirit uses to conform the godly man to his image. So the Holy Spirit inclines the godly man toward God's word. And as the godly man drinks, absorbs God's word, the Holy Spirit uses it to bring forth spiritual maturity according to his good pleasure. Let us move. Then we read, And this leaf does not wither. In other words, the spiritual life is permanent. Why? Because the water sources never dry up. Why do the water sources flow continually? Because God who begins the faithful work, the good work of sanctification, is faithful enough to bring it to completion. Because the word of God does never come back to him without having its effect. Because the word of God is purer than pure gold or silver, which is taken from the earth and purified seven times in the fire, as Psalm 12 says us to us. Next, we read, in all that he does, he prospers. This means that God crowns all the godly men's endeavor to grow with success. And this life is, on this earth already, a very impactful life. Just like Isaac planted in Genesis and harvested hundredfold, the godly man's pursuit of spiritual growth yield immense success because of God's blessings. So, do you want to be rooted and grounded in Christ? Be in the Word. Do you, have, do you want to have the mind of Christ? Be in the Word. Do you want to access the divine treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Be in the Word. Do you want to overcome your flesh, the devil, and the system of this world? Be in the Word. Be in the Word. Be in the Word. Be in the Word all the time. And God will offer himself to you as your reward and your shield, as your very present help in times of trouble, as your comfort in life and in death. Be in the word, brothers and sisters, and springs of living water will gush out of you, like our Lord Jesus Christ said. And God will make of you an oasis 
in this world that sin has transformed into a parched desert. Now, let us set our attention on the faith, on the faith, please, of the ungodly. While the, while the godly man prospers, the ungodly, the wicked, withers. Although he may appear green and prosperous in this life, his life is vain, useless from the divine perspective. And that's why the Holy Spirit portrays the wicked as chaff in our text. But what is chaff? Chaff is the useless husk and impurities people remove from grains after harvesting. In ancient time, what will they do? After harvesting their wheat and barley, they will go, they will bring it to a windy threshing floor, and they will use a farmer fork, for, uh, uh, fork please, to throw the grains into the air. But the grains, because they are heavy, they will immediately fall back to the ground. But the impurities and the husk will be blown away by the wind. And so that's how the wicked is. God is telling us that the wicked is just like that useless husk that is blown away. The wicked is light, even less than light in the divine balance. So whenever you see God's haters prosper, do not be dismayed or envy them. Even for a moment, their seeming prosperity is just a shadow, a 3D hologram, a dream that one forgets once he awakes. With this, we reach the end of our second point. So far, we have seen that God makes the godly fruitful and that the apparent prosperity of the wicked accounts for nothing. Now, let us see what God says about the godly man's future. Our last point, his future reward. The Holy Spirit indirectly speaks about the godly man's future. He does so by contrasting the eternal life that awaits the godly to the damnation that awaits the wicked. We read, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The two lines here express the same idea the damnation of the wicked. Such damnation can begin here on earth when a community, by God's grace, becomes God-centered. The wicked may receive the, pay, the repayment for their crimes. God can also, on this earth, providentially exert judgment through various calamities. But the full-fledged damnation will happen in the last day, the day of the Lord, when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And there, what will happen? Christ will measure all the works that we have done in the body by the standards of God's perfections. Then, the works of the wicked will not stand the test. But the works of the godly will stand the test because they originate from faith in Christ. And Christ will expel the wicked to the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will say to them, I have never known you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Then all the pomp and lies that the wicked had used to dull his conscience and to defang God's judgment, to defang, to remove the teeth, actually, of God's judgment, all that pomp will vanish. And he will realize that God has always known all his secrets and that God was angry with him every day, storing wrath for him daily. But while fear, despair, and sadness will overwhelm the wicked, joy, inexpressible, and relief will overwhelm the godly man. He will realize that the same man who came to save him is his judge. He will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I was the one performing in you all those works of gratefulness, all those sacrifices of obedience. Such a pleasant state. Now, considering God's judgment, you should ask yourself, does Christ know me? Does Christ know me? Has he given me true faith? And if the answer is yes, he's making me to believe in him, I can see his works in my heart, then blessed are you. But if the answer is no, you are on the way of damnation. Please, I plead with you, pray to him to make you part of the congregation of the righteous. Do not put it for tomorrow. You do not know when the judgment will come. So, let us conclude. What does the passage teach? The passage describes how God blesses the man who delights in him. This man shuns worldliness in all its forms. Doing the will of God is his greatest delight, and that's why he ponders God's instructions all the time. He walks by the Spirit continuously, and so he bears the fruit of the Spirit always. God gives him immense success in the pursuit of godliness and great impact in this life. And he has also an eternal inheritance. 
So in light of this summary, I think we must answer, it's not I think, the, the text compels us to answer the following important question. Are you this man? I know the answer for all of us here. We are not this man. So the answer is no. The best of us have just a small beginning of the obedience that God requires of us. The best of us have just a small beginning of the obedience of this man, of someone. Only Jesus, the righteous, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, only him can be this man. So, what do we do with this psalm? Do we avoid it because it confronts us? No. Let us have this psalm as a mirror, like the Ten Commandments. A mirror that shows us what we are lacking and how we do not meet God's standards. Yet, let it be for us, at the same time, a mirror which drives us to Christ. That's what the law is supposed to make. That's why the realization of the great high height of God's standards is supposed to do in our hearts. And finally, as children of God, members of the congregation of the righteous, let this psalm be to us a rule of thankfulness, a guide on the path of a life of godliness, which is how we ought to live. Amen.